From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McCray. Osteoporosis affects millions of older Americans and it can lead to broken bones and debilitating illness. But getting osteoporosis isn't inevitable. So at some point, a bone density test should be checked if you've never had a fracture. Make sure that you don't have any underlying cause that can be identified that can be treated because if you fix things, oftentimes it helps the bones too in the long run. But beyond that, adequate calcium intake, adequate vitamin D intake, as well as staying physically active with exercise. We'll get the latest on osteoporosis and what you can do to protect against it from Mayo Clinic endocrinologist Dr. Bart Clark. Also on the program, teeth whiteners, what works and what doesn't. And is there an asthma peanut allergy connection? All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, it's a fact of life. And one of the things that happens as we get older is that our bones get weaker. Hmm. And as they get weaker, they're more prone to breaking. And it's a problem called osteoporosis. Osteo, bone, mm-hmm. porosity. <laughs> the bone's got holes in them. It's not good. Yeah, it gets weak. <laughs> and according to the National Osteoporosis Foundation, osteoporosis is responsible or causes some 2 million fractures or broken bones every year in this country. But not all older adults get osteoporosis, and some who do have a much harder time with it than others. Here to talk about osteoporosis, how it's treated, and how you can reduce its impact on your health is Mayo Clinic endocrinologist Dr. Bart Clark. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Clark. Thanks for the opportunity to come back. Dr. Clark, some have called this disease the silent thief. Explain that. So as a person ages, many times we're aware of things that change, like our joints begin to hurt. Uh, perhaps my back hurts more than it used to when I do certain activities. But certain conditions, of course, like osteoporosis, hypertension, high blood pressure, diabetes, many of these do not give symptoms, at least not early on. And certainly in the case of osteoporosis, before the first bone breaks, you would never know you had osteoporosis because it doesn't cause pain or other symptoms. At least they don't call it the silent killer, like hypertension, Mm -hmm. but the silent thief. You don't really know it's happening. That's right. And over time as we age, our bones give up bone density, uh, sometimes enough that the bones get quite thin, and then with that, of course, then fractures will occur, even without significant trauma. When does that start? Well, typically the age-related bone loss begins for both men and women in the mid-50s. At least that's the way it's been conceived. Now, more recent studies have shown that certain parts of our skeleton actually start to decline, believe it or not, in the mid-30s. Ooh, so before that might most even of us include you, Tracy. Maybe. Are even over the hill, we're already <laughs> starting to lose. But the big loss occurs really after the mid-50s for both men and women. Now, as Tracy mentioned, not everybody gets osteoporosis. So who should worry about it. Who's at risk? Yeah, so people at risk would certainly be those who have a family history of osteoporosis, especially if either parent had a hip fracture. That would be a major red flag if that was the case. Um, Individuals who had previous low trauma fractures, even in childhood or young adult years, those people seem to be at higher risk of getting Mm. more trouble as they get older. You mean they broke a bone and they really didn't have that significant an injury? That's right. A number of studies now show if you fracture in even childhood or young adulthood, 
and nothing else is uh, different or changed, you could have an increased risk of osteoporosis as you get older. Why do you suppose that is? Well, the thought is that even young adults or children um, have a certain bone structure, and there's differences in bone structure between different people. If you have the right kind of bone structure, perhaps your bones are weaker to begin with Ah. than your you know, people of the same age Mm -hmm. who just don't happen to have that same bone structure. Other risk factors, family history was one, minimal trauma and a fracture is another. Right, so his personal history of fractures would probably be the biggest two. Age is recognized as a major risk factor, so the older you get, the more likely it is. You might think about many things that would come with age that would increase the risk, such as imbalance or difficulties with coordination and perhaps an increased fall risk. So increased falls for sure uh, would set you up for fractures. Beyond those things clinically, though, that we can learn from patients, there is many things that can be detected by blood testing that detect underlying pathophysiology that would lead to bone loss. And so this could include things like vitamin D deficiency, not taking enough calcium in your diet or supplements, and things like that. Females versus males? Females are at higher risk, mainly because of the menopausal loss. But of all the people who get osteoporosis in the U.S. today, it's estimated that about 20% of them are men. And men, historically at least, have not been thought to be affected by this, at least to the same degree that women have. But men are affected as well. We thought we were home free, but Sorry, I guess not. Sorry, Charlie. <laughs> um, explain how it is diagnosed, because it just seems like if a bone is broken, then, oh, that's when we find out you have osteoporosis. Right. So there's two ways of looking at this. The way we look at it currently is if you have a low trauma fracture history, you broke something usually with a fall from standing height or less, that alone will get attention because it's a hallmark perhaps of weakening of the bones. For those of us who have not had fractures yet, bone density testing is still the best way to find out. What that does is it gets a measurement of your bone strength uh, from the bone density measurement and that would predict future fractures if it's low enough. So we look both at fracture history and the bone density result. Does it matter which uh, part of the uh, body the skeleton is fractured, or are there usual ones that that would make you suspect it? Yeah, so you think about people breaking very commonly fingers, toes, occasionally the skull. Those kinds of fractures are regarded as mostly high-trauma fractures and therefore not due to osteoporosis. Virtually every other bone in the body that can break, though, especially the hip, the wrist, the backbone, or the shoulder, those would be regarded as the most common osteoporotic fractures. How is it that a bone density test is done? So typically this is an x-ray technique where they use x-rays, and what you do is you lay on a table on your back usually. They pass the x-rays through the center of your spine and then through the hip areas, as well as adjacent in the soft tissues around those bones, and they get a ratio of how much x-ray radiation comes through. The denser your bones, the less comes through. They can calculate a ratio, and then that gives the report. Gotcha. Who ought to have that test? Obviously, someone who's had a fracture secondary to minimal trauma, but who else? So in patients who've never had fractures, who don't seem to have risk factors that we identify earlier in life, the recommendation currently is that Postmenopausal women at age 65 should have a screening bone density. For men right now, it's age 70. But most of the organizations would also say if you're younger than that and had other risk factors that could be identified, we should do you sooner, perhaps as soon as age 50. Women at age 60, men at age 70. Yeah. So if a man lives long enough, 65. And then men at 70. All right. So interesting. I never knew that men ought to have a DEXA scan. Well, listen, what you learn by listening to this program (laughs) and being part of it, Dr. Shives. Uh, So go back to the the younger, you know, you said if there is a broken bone in childhood, 
I had never heard that 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 might be, but it makes sense because they don't have strong bones, and that's why they got the broken bone when they were 12. That's right. And the thinking used to be is that as people would get older, they would correct, in a sense, whatever defects mm. they had in their skeleton with just normal growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, most of us reach our peak bone density by the mid-30s, so even though height uh, changes stop at about late teenage or early 20s, bone density keeps going up for the next mm. 10 to 15 years, and so almost everybody reaches their peak by about age 35. So if you have a fracture in younger years or, say, young adult years, um, it could be a tip-off that there's going to be some predisposition to fracture later in life. Huh. What about diabetes? There's an epidemic of, of diabetes related to obesity. Doesn't that increase your risk for osteoporosis? Both forms, yes. Both type 1 and type 2 increase the risk. Now, type 1, because it's a childhood onset usually or young adult onset, and then there's many metabolic derangements that occur. That has been understood for many years to increase the risk of fracture. People with that in childhood tend not to grow up as big as other adults. They tend to have smaller skeletons. Their bones are more fragile, so that makes sense. More recently, though, it's been realized that even type 2 diabetics, which tend to have higher bone density than their age-matched peer group, also have an increased fracture risk, even though their bone density is higher. How is that? That's a good question. That right now is <laughs> that's a, what a research question that's being heavily studied in many centers around the, the world, actually, because it's been known that um, the bone density of older adults with diabetes tends to be higher than men or women of the same age group. But in spite of that, the observation is the fractures are higher than we would predict from those numbers. So this has been a recent observation in the last five years or so that has raised a lot of concern. How about petite females? Someone like uh, Tracy, who uh, is small, doesn't, uh, what do you have, a BMI of 12? (laughs) Okay, let's just say. Are they at increased risk? (laughs) Try to make this not personal. Thank you. So low BMI, low body mass index, which generally means you're going to be more slender or perhaps shorter than other people your age, would increase your risk of fracture too. So the diameter of bones is protective against fracture. The bigger diameter bones you have, the stronger they are the less risk you have for fracture. But smaller bone people, slender people, people that are tall and slender in particular, because when they fall, they fall farther Hmm. than the rest of us. If you're slender and you land just right, it's not too hard to break a bone. Osteoporosis expert Dr. Bart Clark will take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about the treatment of osteoporosis and the all-important prevention. We'll tell you how even being petite, you can prevent having osteoporosis and getting a fracture later on. Plus, myth or matter of fact. Yeah, when we come back, myth or matter of fact, osteoporosis is not that serious. The most that can happen is a broken bone. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're talking about osteoporosis with Mayo Clinic endocrinologist Dr. Bart Clark. Let's go with myth or matter of fact. Yeah, let's find out. Osteoporosis is not that serious. The most that can happen is a broken bone. Is that a myth or a fact? Well, it's generally true. Um, you certainly get pain and some disability from the time that you have the fracture, but it, after it's repaired, you, you have pretty quick recovery. And the, one, the repair is pretty good mm, around here. I'm what, sure you know? it is. That's right. You could find a good surgeon who would know what to do. <laughs> now, the bigger issue, I would say, is that other studies have shown recently that hip fracture and backbone fractures are associated with increased risk of dying in the near term after the fracture over the next two years. It's not clear why. 
some of that hip fracture-wise could be blood clots or fat emboli or things like that. It's not clear why vertebral fractures would also increase your risk Hmm. of dying. So even though it's true, yes, it's a broken bone that can be fixed. It's not a fatal illness. Um, There are consequences of having fractures, and so this is why the big push is on to try to prevent them. The hip fracture is often a terminal event for for people, particularly in nursing homes. Yes, very much so in the elderly, and many of them, if they don't die from it, they're disabled enough that they oftentimes lose independence, have to move into a nursing home if they're not there already. So there is big consequences from the hip especially. The others, you know, they're repairable, they're fixable, they get better in time, but uh, the hip is the big one. I would assume that there's more osteoporosis now more than ever before because people are living longer also. True, and um, in spite of all the facts that uh, we have therapy, we have diagnostic capabilities, many people are not being tested or treated, even if they should be, based on the information available. All right, so how are we going to stop it? What do we have to do? Well, first of all, I think recognizing the problem, if it's there, as was said earlier, there's not everybody gets osteoporosis, and so at some point, a bone density test should be checked if you've never had a fracture. If you've had a fracture or more than one fracture of a low trauma type, that should be a reason to have this conversation with your physician earlier, uh, perhaps in your 50s or even early 60s. So get the DEXA scan early. Yeah. And then, basically, once that's uh, figured out, make sure that you don't have any underlying causes that can be identified that can be treated because those things, if you fix things uh, uh, early on, oftentimes it helps the bones, too, in the long run. And what might some of those conditions be? So if you had an overactive thyroid, for example, and didn't know, that would cause bone loss. Overactive parathyroid glands, which cause high blood calcium, are fairly common, and they cause bone loss over time. Diabetes, if you had it and it wasn't being treated or controlled, that would be a risk factor as well. So there's a lot of, there's about 50 things, in fact, that you could acquire or have in life that would cause a problem. Steroid medications, if you take steroids all the time, that'll cause bone loss. So those things, if they can be adjusted or, or stopped or uh, somehow treated, it'll help. But beyond that, though, um, adequate calcium intake, adequate vitamin D intake is still the baseline uh, intervention that doesn't hurt anybody and it always helps the bones in general as well as staying physically active with exercise. And how much calcium should I be taking? What, what is the kind? dose? I mean, yeah. there are too many options out there. Agreed. All right. So we need an expert's advice. So, so what the experts would tell you today is that if you're 50 and above and a woman, you should be on 1,200 milligrams of elemental calcium a day between your diet and or supplements if you chose to take them. For a man, if you're below 70, you still take 1,000 milligrams a day, but above 70, you would take 1,200. And for women under 50, we'd still say 1,000 milligrams a day total calcium intake. And how is the best way to get that? Well, if you can get it through your diet, it's mm-hmm. more, it's better nutrition to take it through your diet. The problem is so many people can't take dairy products or they're watching their cholesterol and they've been told mm-hmm. to avoid dairy products. So if you can't take dairy products, there are many other calcium-rich foods that you can take. There are cereals, for example, that are supplemented, fruit juices that are supplemented. Most of us could find a way to get dietary calcium intake in these ranges simply through our diet. But if you choose not to or you don't like the things that have it, then the other option is go ahead and take a calcium tablet. Of the choices out there, I would say for most of us, calcium carbonate would still work well. And if you took a five or 600 milligram tablet of calcium carbonate and then had dietary calcium on average of about five or 600 milligrams, 
that will get you close to the mark of what's being recommended. And what about kids? Where do kids fall in here? Because these are for adults. Yeah, these recommendations are mostly for children, even as far down as uh, maybe, say, 8 to 10. Below that, there's a recommendation for higher calcium intake because their skeletons are still growing. But mid-elementary school age and beyond, the amounts are recommended are pretty much the same as adults, mostly 1,000 milligrams a day. and you need to get 1,200 milligrams a day if you're a man over 70 and, and women pretty much throughout life. Above 50 would, would say 1,200 milligrams a day. Yeah, that's and, the recommendation. And eat more healthfully, Tom. <laughs> Got it? I'm going to work on it. Okay, very good. And, oh, exercise. I forgot. That's uh, it's a good way to help prevent osteoporosis, isn't so. it? Very much so. And exercise, if you are able to walk three to four days a week, 30 minutes a day, that type of time frame of exercise is all that it takes to get maximal benefit to your skeleton. On top of that, people who are more active are more balanced and coordinated usually than others, and they tend to fall less often. Mm -hmm. So the exercise is not just for strengthening bones, because it does do that, but perhaps even more important, it helps prevent falls in the long term. Okay, I went back to strength training because I was worried about my bones, and I've been sore for six weeks. (laughs) Am I doing the right thing? Probably yes. Okay, thank goodness. I'm going to say, if anything hurts too much, though, I'd say stop doing that, (laughs) and it'll get better. But generally, um, strength training is also good. I mean, core strengthening, of course, is important for just maintaining upright stature uh, to stand straight, pull your shoulders back. But even uh, muscle strengthening of the arms and the legs through various weightlifting or other activities is also very good for the bones. The, The muscles by pulling on the bones when they contract actually helps the bones stay stronger. And in fact, the hardest thing on the skeleton and the person who's otherwise healthy is not having weight bearing activity. If you go to bed rest for three months, or they shoot you out into space on the space station for six months, you're going to lose bone density big time no matter what you do. Hmm. All right, now we know how to prevent it. We've got just a minute or two remaining. Talk to us about treatment. You've got some pretty good drugs out there now, don't you? Yeah, there's at least seven or eight drugs right now that are approved by the FDA for treating osteoporosis. They all work. They're all good. They all have side effects. So the choice of a drug for a given patient has to be based on their other medical concerns and other issues that they face. Bisphosphonates orally are still used the most commonly around the world. Fosamax is the most widely used, alendronate generic now. But that drug um, reduces fracture risk by about 50 to 60%. It does have GI side effects mainly and very, very rare risks of osteonecrosis in the jaw or atypical femur fractures. So a part of the jawbone dies, but that's a very rare complication, right? It's estimated to be about one person out of 100,000 people treated for one year will have an event in the setting of osteoporosis. So this is much lower than most people realize. So the fact of the matter is there you've got several different drugs to treat it. Most of them, are they're all very effective, but it's something you ought to discuss with your physician, pros and cons, complications before you choose one. Yeah, because, you know, other factors weigh in on the decision. Some are more costly, some are less costly. Generic alendronate right now is very cheap. Others are more expensive. So the person's unique medical situation really determines, in most cases, what drugs we can choose. And then among those choices, the patient oftentimes makes the choice for themselves what they'd rather do. Osteoporosis expert, Dr. Bart Clark, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Tom. Dr. Bart Clark, endocrinologist at the Mayo Clinic. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, dispelling some myths about teeth whiteners, what works and what doesn't. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with today's Mayo Clinic News Network headlines. Menthol cigarettes. A new study from Georgetown University Medical Center shows menthol, when combined with nicotine, may decrease airway sensitivity, allowing smokers to inhale more deeply. The researchers then wonder if this adds to harmful effects of smoking. Mayo Clinic Dr. John Ebert says the FDA has already found that menthol is associated with increased smoking rates among youth and is likely associated with greater addiction. Dr. Ebert says menthol or not, don't smoke. And if you do, try to quit. Call 1-800-QUIT-NOW for help. And now another reason to avoid sugary drinks. Researchers in the U.K. have linked them to an increased risk of type 2 diabetes. But replacing them with water may help curb what they call an escalating diabetes epidemic. This was in the journal Diabetologia. Ovarian cancer. Its symptoms can be subtle. If you have abdominal pain or bloating, increasing girth, and changing bowel or bladder habits, talk to your doctor. This deadly cancer is treatable, especially if it's found early. The one thing that's been proven to reduce death from ovarian cancer is that of risk-reducing surgery, so removing the tubes and ovaries uh, before the cancer develops. Mayo Clinic Dr. Jamie Bacham Gomez says women who've been identified as having genes such as BRCA1 are considered high risk. She says for this group, which makes up 20% of all ovarian cancer cases, genetic testing and counseling are key. Not only does genetic testing help identify additional potential risks for the individual and their family members, but also now helps us identify potential treatments for the patient. The American Cancer Society says ovarian cancer is the fifth leading cause of cancer-related death among women and is the deadliest of gynecologic cancers. This time of year, people cannot wait to get outside and enjoy the season, but springtime carries with it an emergence of creepy crawlies, including ticks which carry Lyme disease. The concern with ticks is they can transmit a number of organisms that can cause disease in humans. Probably one of the most important is Lyme disease. Some of the main symptoms include a rash, which is described as a bullseye rash. It can also involve the joints and can cause an arthritis-like picture. Dr. Bobby Pritt, a Mayo Clinic expert in parasitology, or parasites, says to do these things to prevent tick bites. So if you're going for a walk in the woods, you want to stay on the paths. You want to avoid the tall grasses on either side of the paths. And so if you're going to be in those areas, then you want to dress appropriately, wearing long sleeves. Uh, I have my pants tucked into my socks, and you also want to spray an insect repellent containing DEET. If a tick does embed into your skin, you want to remove the tick as quickly as possible, and the best way to do that is with fine-tipped forceps. You want to take your forceps as close as possible to the skin, pinch it there tightly, and then just slowly pull the tick out. And if you do feel sick after a tick bite, see your doctor just to be safe. And that's today's Mayo Clinic News Network headline. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shai. And I'm Tracy McRae. A smile can go a long way toward easing the burden of a difficult day. And when we smile, most of us like to show a good set of white, pearly yeah, teeth. Nice, Something like yours. Beautiful yeah. white teeth. But therein lies the problem. Aging, along with some of the things that we eat and drink, please don't check my coffee cup, <laughs> can take a toll on white teeth. To try to reverse that, many people turn to teeth whiteners. And there's n- lots of teeth whiteners on the market, some that work 
and some that don't. Here to talk about teeth whiteners and other oral hygiene is Mayo Clinic dentist, Dr. Phil Sheridan. Welcome to the program, Dr. Sheridan. I bet this is, what, appearance number 100? Is this an anniversary for you? Something like that. Yeah, it's pretty close, isn't it? So let's talk about uh, teeth whiteners because it seems like we have heard about a lot of different, maybe alternatives, even from a TV doctor that would suggest there are certain things that I question whether or not they can really whiten your teeth. So we came for an expert's opinion. Okay, I think I know the TV doctor (laughs) that you're talking about. His latest, at least according to the internet, is to uh, brush your teeth with strawberries and baking soda to Yeah, what teeth. about that now? How, did, how does that Wait a work? I think that's a waste <laughs> of some really good strawberries. Do you, I was say, do you, he wants you to make a paste? You mash those two things together? I, I guess. Actually, I, when I heard about this, I went online and I looked at the video of the program. I watched it three times to okay. make sure I got it right. Okay. You couldn't believe but, it the first time, could I you? couldn't. <laughs> but he actually didn't mix the strawberries with the baking soda. What he did was he took a lemon and he, he put some lemon juice in with the baking soda, made a bubbly paste, took a, a, a patient or a person uh, from the audience and a cotton ball and got this paste on the cotton ball and put it on the lady's teeth and then she brushed her teeth and this was his home remedy for for whitening your teeth. Okay. Uh, uh, can I say it's nonsense? Sure. Okay. okay. Just don't say his name. That's what we wanted to know. <laughs> Where do the strawberries come in? I don't know. Strawberries are good for your teeth. He said, he said that they're an astringent and they have vitamin C in them and so an astringent and vitamin C will bleach your teeth. But it is a fact that people want to have white teeth. Everybody yes. wants to have whiter teeth. Yes. So how do we go about doing that? Well, right now today, there are probably three good ways to do that. One is with the -the over-the-counter products, which you find in the pharmacy. There are strips that you can apply to your teeth. There are certain types of toothpaste and various things that you can use to whiten or lighten your teeth. And some of those over-the-counter products really work quite well if you use them over an extended period of time. The advantage to those products is... They're less expensive than the other options that we have available to us. So when patients ask the question, I frequently will tell them to suggest that they try some of these products and see how they work. And if they don't work, then you can go to the products that the dentist suggests. The problem with the products the dentist suggests is that they cost more, there's more expense involved, but they do work better and they're more effective. And the, the two things that the dentist will do is, one, they have the at-home whitening products or kits. And what they do is they make an impression of your teeth and they make a a carrier, a tray. This is a thing that looks like the the mouth guard that the kids wear when they play football and when they play baseball. It covers your teeth. And then they give you a, a solution that you put into this tray. You put it into the tray each night. And ideally, you put this thing in and you wear it overnight. And After a period of about two weeks, most people find that they get eight shades of improvement, whitening, that is, of the teeth. Now, when I talk about shades, uh, if I can uh, relate this concept to you, we take a shade guide. If you go to the the, um, Home Depot Mm -hmm. and you want to buy blue paint, they have light blue paint in various shades up to dark blue paint. Mm -hmm. Well, we have exactly the same thing for the teeth. And what you can do is you can take a shade guide and let's just throw out some numbers and say your teeth are A12 and A1 is really white. 
So if you p- use this kit and you apply this and you use it every night for two weeks, at the end of two weeks, your teeth should be about eight shades lighter. So you should be down, if you start at A12, you should be down to about A4. Now, that's pretty impressive. Yes, it is. And it, it, it works quite well The if you stop at that point in time and wait six weeks, usually the teeth will darken and go back to maybe A6. But that's about as far as it goes, and usually that will hold for about two years. Wow. So that really works quite well. But the, but some people do go all the way to an A1 or 2, and yes, it's they too do. white. They do. And they then can, you've got more trouble. Well, you can. They, they make the teeth. Some people will make their teeth almost translucent. Mm. And I heard one of my prosthodontist friends tell me once with a patient we were dealing with who had made her teeth translucent, they almost become blue. You can see through them. Mm. He said he hopes she never breaks a tooth because there's no way he could ever match oh. the color of those teeth. But That's over a shade ex- A minus two. Yeah, Yikes. A minus. <laughs> so over an extended period of time, the teeth the teeth will darken again. And for for two years, they really hold up pretty well. But Tracy, you're going to still drink your coffee mm-hmm. and and have the the uh, Chinese food with the mm-hmm. soy sauce and sure. a little glass of red wine once in a while. So. The teeth will darken again, so from time to time it's necessary to touch them up or do a little more bleaching. I've never investigated it because I have sensitive teeth, and Uh, I have heard that this is a problem. That's a problem. That's a major problem. That's one of the problems with bleaching the teeth people encounter. Their teeth can become sensitive to the point where they can't tolerate that, Mm -hmm. and they have to stop bleaching the teeth. Now, what usually happens when the teeth when the teeth become sensitive is we have the patient use a desensitizing toothpaste, and over a period of a few weeks or a month, the teeth will usually improve and the sensitivity will decrease. Now, what the manufacturers have done, the people who make the bleach, is they are now adding a lot of them are now adding potassium nitrate and fluoride to the bleach to try to minimize the sensitivity that patients That's have a great idea. Yeah, and it, it, it does make a difference and it does help. The other the other one way to ble- to bleach the teeth that I did not discuss, and it probably isn't my favorite, is bleaching in the dentist's office. One-time deal, right? Uh, no, it's no? not a one-time deal. It would be well, wonderful if it was a one-time deal. And have it done but the truth done. is, the <laughs> truth is, when you look at this, they're using the, the, the product that you usually get from the dentist to put in the tray is usually 10% carbamide peroxide. And that stuff works quite well. That's the, the dosage that the American Dental Association has okayed and said is is good. Sometimes uh, some of these products contain 20%. Your teeth are more apt to become sensitive if you do that. But in the office, they use a hydrogen peroxide. And they're using anywhere from 25 to 50% hydrogen peroxide. That will bleach your teeth relatively quickly. It'll make your teeth sensitive relatively quickly. And it will burn your gums. Mm. So what they have to do is they have to put some type of barrier over your gums to keep from burning your gums when they when you use this product in the dental office. So they, they have what looks like a gel or an impression paste or something that they mold to cover over the gums. And then they light cure this to harden it up and then apply this hydrogen peroxide gel to your teeth. Sometimes they use various kinds of light to activate this product. Uh, there's, there's a debate as to whether you actually need to use a, a special light to activate it. But it's usually a 15-minute procedure. Then you wash it off of the teeth, and then you can go 15 minutes again, and you can do that f- usually about four times in the dental office. But what they find, it does whiten your teeth. But I've seen photos, I've seen pictures, 
And if you do the at home for two weeks, your teeth will be whiter at the end mm. of two weeks than in this office thing. But it depends on how dark your teeth are and how much you need to whiten them. The one day in the dental office may work just fine depending on what your needs are. If you're young, and I, sometimes we see people who are in their 20s that are bleaching their teeth, I look and say, why? Their teeth are really quite white. But when you're old, like Dr. Shives, right. th- then, then you really... <laughs> your options are limited, just like your time. So there are your options. Dr. Philip Sheridan, thanks so much for sharing those. Appreciate your uh, input. You're welcome. When we come back, a new study that links an allergy to peanuts in children that may be masked or covered up by allergy symptoms, or does it? We'll speak to a pediatric allergy and immunology specialist when we return. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Asthma symptoms and those of some allergies can be similar, especially coughing, wheezing, shortness of breath. Well, now there is some evidence that chronic asthma symptoms in children may be, in fact, triggered by an unknown allergy to peanuts. So if your child has asthma and his or her symptoms are difficult to control, having your child tested for a peanut allergy might be a good thing to do. Might might be. be, And that study has created some real controversy. It hasn't been published yet, but word is already out. Here to talk about this new study is Dr. Martha Hartz. She is the Division Chair of Pediatric Allergy and Immunology. Welcome to the program, Dr. Hartz. Hello. First of all, explain to us why there is uproar too much of a word or just a lot of commotion about this study that has yet to be published. Well, the first thing is asthma is a very common condition. It's the most common chronic condition in children. So there's certainly a lot of affected children. And peanut allergy is the most common cause of fatal food anaphylaxis. And it's the most common food allergy, isn't it, in kids or no? Well, it's not the most common food allergy, but it... What is? Milk and egg are actually more common, but um, peanut... Uh, is increasing in prevalence, and we are trying to figure out why. Um, and certainly any connection between the two is going to have parents concerned. Well, and on the evening news and on the 24-hour news cycle, you hook together asthma and peanut allergies, and you've got a little bit of wildfire, which is what this is kind of becoming. Yeah, I, I think... Where did, where, did this, where did it come from? Well, first of all, a lot of kids with asthma have food allergies. In fact, children with food allergies, one-third of them will develop asthma. Mm. These these two conditions run together. They're atopic or allergic conditions, um, along with eczema and allergic rhinitis. So a lot of parents have kids with both a peanut allergy or a food allergy and asthma. But that does not mean that food allergies trigger asthma, and that's where the controversy arises. And that's what this study is, that, as we said, has yet to be published, is going to say, is that that is what's happening. Yeah. So the, the American Thoracic Society is having a meeting, and an abstract was published showing um, that... Um, a substantial proportion of patients with chronic asthma have a sensitivity mm. to peanut allergy, but then drawing the conclusion that perhaps patients with poorly controlled asthma need to have their child tested because perhaps mm-hmm. the um, 
the peanut allergy may be causing some of the poorly controlled asthma. In other words, making the asthma more difficult to control. Right. And furthermore, that parents, that children may have a peanut allergy that parents are unaware of mm. and, uh, and that if they had screening tests that, and addressed this, this may somehow better control their asthma. And this was presented at that meeting last week and you said this week there's been a lot of people like yourself who are saying, hold on now, just a minute. Is that it, correct? That is correct. And, and our specialty societies, the American uh, College and the American Academy of Allergy and Immunology are concerned as well. And so what is the disagreement? What would you, what well, would you say? What would I say? Well, the first thing I would say is that to diagnose a food allergy, you need two things. You need both a positive test and then you need um, symptoms of redness, flushing, hives, swelling occurring generally within two hours of the reaction. So, so in other words, you're saying that a positive test doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be symptomatic if you eat that food. Exactly. There are about half of tests that are positive are false positives. Oh, so the test might be positive, but you're not really allergic to that, to peanuts or whatever. Exactly. So we typically do the reverse. We wait for the symptoms and then do the test. Because if you, there's a problem with um, doing the test and eliminating a food that you're sensitive to, you can lose tolerance. So somebody who eats peanut just fine, we are, we don't test them for IgE. People with asthma have a lot of this Ig allergy antibody. If we went ahead and screened this patient that eats peanut butter every day and got a positive test and then told them to stop eating peanut, they could lose their oral tolerance and develop an allergy. So we've actually done some harm. The second thing is there's absolutely no evidence that hidden food allergies trigger asthma. There's no evidence And there's no evidence that finding hidden food allergies will improve severe or chronic asthma. It's exactly what the study didn't say. I mean, you're contradicting what the study said. Which is why there's so much controversy. Is it at least being studied that maybe at some point you said there is no evidence that? Is it being studied to determine it? Yeah, there are lots of studies about food allergies and how they might impact respiratory symptoms. Um, Really, what you really need to worry about if your child has uh, chronic, poorly controlled asthma is um, aero allergens, so the type of allergens that you breathe into your airway. Um, pollens, for example. Pollens, okay. okay. Then the second thing you need to worry about is, again, somewhat turning what is said in the study on its head by saying what you need to worry about if you have a food allergy and you have asthma, you are much more likely to have a severe food reaction because the eating the allergen can trigger your asthma. And so patients are twice as likely to be hospitalized after an accidental ingestion of, say, peanut if they have asthma as opposed to if they don't. So if your child has food allergies, the most important thing is to um, read labels, 
and carry epinephrine in case of accidental ingestion. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Hartz, for helping to explain this study and a little bit of this controversy. Dr. Hartz, again, is the Division Chair of Pediatric Allergy and Immunology here at Mayo Clinic. Thanks, Dr. Hartz. You're welcome. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.